Welcome back to the Pete Space. I'm Eric Kaufman with Pallet Life Sciences. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Pete Space on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to be notified when a new episode is released. Pallet Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the Pete Space for sharing best practices and compelling conversations across a wide variety of pediatric urology and VUR topics. The content of today's episode is solely the opinion of Dr. Katie Canalicchio, Pediatric Urologist at Norton Children's Urology, and Dr. Irina Stanisel, Board Certified Pediatric Urologist and Assistant Professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center. In this episode, Dr. Canalicchio and Dr. Stanisel discuss simulation training and pediatric urology. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Canalicchio and Dr. Stanisel. Dr. Canalicchio, you have a paper that you had published in simulator training and urology in the state and, you know, future directions. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to join y'all today. Paper that you're speaking of reviewed the current trends in surgical simulation within the field of urology. The old model of see one, do one, teach one in medical training really is no longer a viable standalone option given resident work hour restrictions, patient safety concerns, and the rapid advancement of the field itself. Simulation training allows for the development of surgical skills without risk to the patient's safety on the learner's own time and is becoming very important in today's education of medical students, surgical residents, and fellows just because of those reasons I mentioned. And Dr. Stanisil, giving your experience with simulator models and, and the deflux training model, can you speak to your history and, and your fellowship and your training with them? So I'm part of this generation that is kind of at the beginning of starting to utilize simulation and using some modeling techniques. I did my residency between 2008 and 2013, which was not at the very beginning of the use of robotics in urology, but it wasn't shortly thereafter. And at that time, there was not too much simulation that was available for the use of the robot. And I thought it really limited our ability to train. I I would have appreciated more simulation abilities when it came to the use of robotics. And I kind of saw that grow. And now we do a lot more simulation when it comes to robotics. And our residents, our trainees certainly benefit from that. There is a robot available for them to go practice. They can practice on models. They can practice in the virtual space using this backpack that, that can be utilized with the robot. So it's basically like playing video games in some sense, and it's really helped. So that when I was approached to come in and work on a simulator model for deflux, I thought what an opportunity to improve this technique for deflux injection and improve the training much in the way that we have done in this robotic space. So I've worked to improve this model for injection of deflux and I've had our fellows try it out and I've gotten to see kind of the benefit that they may gain from it and it's really exciting. I think it really has an opportunity to improve education and training and to speed up the process of becoming proficient in the use of a technique and this all relates back to saving time and improving patient safety which are really really important to us these days. 
Endoscopic correction at VUR has a steep learning curve, and literature shows that pediatric urology fellows perform 20 to 30 cases before success rates approach those of a seasoned pediatric urologist. What are your thoughts and feelings as far as a simulation model reducing that learning curve? I definitely think it could help. The learning curves for other endoscopic and minimally invasive procedures have been shown to be very similar to what you mentioned. I think it's important to differentiate competency from proficiency in a task. Competency is the point at which the surgeon can safely perform the procedure, but proficiency is the point at which the surgeon has truly mastered the technique. For instance, the learning curve for PCNL has been described as 45 to 60 cases for competency, so a surgeon can safely perform it at that point, but actually 115 cases may be needed for proficiency or mastery. So trying to get that amount of cases to gain first competency and then proficiency would definitely be augmented by having a simulator model available. Deflux injection is a technique that if a trainee has had some some opportunity to learn the technique, to practice the technique on a simulator model, then the chance of that trainee being more involved in the procedure during their training rather than just simply watching the entire thing is a lot higher. And it's just, it's a technique where the technique matters. You know, it just, it really does. So as a faculty, these are, you know, I, I take these kids to the operating room to take care of them and to, to fix their reflux and I feel responsible and I am a lot more likely to have a trainee really actively participate in the procedure if they've had some training. The simulation can really improve their the trainee's experience during their training. If they're coming to the operating room and they know how to set up the equipment, they're familiar with the technique, even the steps of it. It may not be, you know, the exact feel of how it feels to inject deflux, but they know the steps. They know how to hold the instrument. They know how to position the needle and what they're looking for. That is going to result in a better experience for the trainee. So I think that number of procedures that it takes to become competent or proficient even may be cut down with the use of simulation, but it also just gives them the opportunity to get a lot more of those cases under their belt and get in there sooner and faster because they've already had some training and they're not coming to the operating room without really just knowing anything. They, you know, not knowing how to flush the deflux needle, how to hold their hands, how to position the, the fluid, where to, you know, how to position the patient. These are things that are really important. So it, it can speed up the time to becoming competent and, and proficient if, if they've had some exposure and some training outside of the operating room. And I think that's exactly what the learner-centered approach is referring to, is taking some of that learning out of the operating room and putting it on the, the learner in a safe environment before they come to the operating room where, where the stakes are much higher. Are there any specific steps with the deflux procedure that would transfer to the OR when using the simulator? Yeah, so I can talk about that. I really working on the model, I experienced myself first how I thought this might be beneficial. And then I got to kind of watch the fellows use it and see what of that was really truly helpful and what may not be as helpful. I think with a model like the deflux injection model, one of the really important things is just utilizing the equipment properly, things like hand positioning 
doing, stabilizing your hand, how to position the needle. Once you actually are injecting the deflux with the needle, there's some kind of manipulating of the equipment where you're pulling back the scope a bit while holding the needle in place. And you don't, you know, you don't want to make multiple punctures if you don't have to and things like that. So even without the model really helping the trainee to feel what it feels like to inject the deflux, which is certainly one important aspect of the technique, but just the simple basic steps of the injection technique, the hand positioning, the needle positioning, those sorts of things are actually really important because I I found myself trying to teach that to the fellows during a deflux procedure. And it's a little bit hard. It's a little bit tricky. You're kind of having to think about multiple things at once and then relay those to the trainee. So having the fellows just practice those steps, even without the actual, you know, pushing of the deflux in, I thought was just really, really helpful. It helped me to be able to communicate to them, make sure that they really understood what I was saying, and then show me that they're capable of following those instructions. So that's one really important thing. Then beyond that, the actual feel of what it feels like to push the deflux in and feel that degree of resistance. I do think that the deflux model does provide some of that tactile feedback that is really important because I always hear them, you know, when they're injecting, oh, well, this is, this is, this is a little more resistance than I thought it would be. And then they get kind of scared and they're wiggling the needle around. So if they have some expectation of how things are supposed to feel, even if it's not a hundred percent how it feels in real life, but gives them some sense, some idea, I still think it's, it's hugely beneficial in a technique like this, where just the simple steps and the actual technique really, really matters. I think that the simulation has a lot to add to the experience. And Dr. Kanalikio, during your training and your fellowship, did you, when you were experiencing these different simulators, did you have any specific goals, you know, going into these trainings and what benefits did you get from that? I believe the goal is to balance the education of the trainee and the safety of the patient. So the benefits are that simulation can be used really at any stage of training, even for maintenance of skills and surgeons who've already completed their training. And so really taking that experience partially out of the OR allows for that balance and helps you augment those numbers you need because really at the end of the day, it's about case volume to gain that competency and that proficiency you need for any particular skill. I think it's important to note that approximately 400,000 annual deaths in the United States are believed to be secondary to medical errors, some of those being surgical errors. And then you have to also think about the cost of surgical training, which you shouldn't underestimate because one source thought maybe about $100,000 per trainee when you account for just the extra time that you're spending teaching them in the operating room. So if you're helping reduce that time, you're saving costs to the system and then also patient safety, which is obviously at the top of all of our minds. In your article, crowdsourcing is something that comes up. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. Let me just step back for a moment, though. Uh, The traditional model for evaluating surgical skills in a trainee has always been through direct observation of the trainee at an individual level, and there are obvious limitations to that. The objective structured assessment of technical skills, or the OSATs as we know it, were developed as a means to objectively assess clinical competency. This is a validated assessment tool for grading overall technical proficiency, specifically for open surgery. Crowdsourcing allows for a large group of reviewers to be used in a similar fashion and does this in a way that is scalable. So crowdsource assessment of technical skills or CSATs was designed with this in mind, has been shown to predict patient outcomes and correlates to the expert reviewers' reviews of the providers uh, that they send in their performances. So it's taking it away from the individual level and putting on a more large scale review of surgeon assessment. 
Dr. Stansel, do you have any comments around that or have an opinion? It's a really interesting and fairly novel concept to apply this within surgical training, and it definitely has its place in improving our ability to evaluate trainees and evaluate ourselves, really. So I really appreciate Dr. Kinalikio's work in this and look forward to continuing to further utilize this within our field. So as it relates directly to the deflux injection simulator, Dr. Stanislaw, what are some of the benefits and, and limitations that you see in it? The biggest benefit is to really have the trainee become comfortable with the steps of the operation and how to perform the procedure as far as how to position the patient, use the instrument, hold their hand properly, position the fluid on a particular side, really get a sense of what is limiting to them during the procedure, kind of the pitfalls of the procedure. It also also allows for a huge improvement in my ability to teach the technique and again to do it all in a safe space where we can take our time where it's a simulation it's not a patient and it's not an actual procedure the anatomy of the model I think we've improved that quite a bit and it, the the positioning of the ureters of the ureteric orifices within the bladder are really fairly anatomically correct at this point, I think that the limitation is that it is really just difficult to approximate the exact sensation to the hand of what it feels like to actually inject deflux when you're injecting it in a person. So the simulation model does a great job of that. You get some sense of how it feels to actually inject the deflux and, you know, you can watch the, you know, if you're injecting it in the proper space, you can see there's, you know, you're raise a bleb there and you're creating a mound and that is great. I think it just doesn't give you the exact tactile feedback of what it feels like to actually inject the deflux. So there are a lot of things that are very beneficial about it. I think that we can continue to improve on the technology of having these models approximate real tissue and I'm sure that we're going to continue to improve on that and our uh, different simulation models for deflux and other things that we use in urology and even if it's not 100% perfect, even if that sensation to the hand of the actual injection is not 100% of what it's going to be like when you're actually injecting the deflux, if it approximates it and gives the trainee some sense of what that feels like, I still think it is hugely beneficial. And that's really all important what Dr. Stanisell said. I think to be considered as a training tool, a simulator must demonstrate a few things, one of which being educational benefit. So I think from what she just said there alone, that qualifies. Another thing is validity in which at face value, both the novice and the expert recognize its value. And I think there's definitely value in a, a simulator for deflux. The other one would be cost effectiveness. Could anybody speak to the cost of the simulator? Would it be producible? We have two of them currently in circulation, but I know that the others can uh, produce. So we will have probably around 10 or so in the field start. So it, it's certainly no cost to the healthcare providers and, and hospitals. So it's just, it's a mobile unit. So we can take it and go. 
The model is this, you know, I mean, it's essentially like a box and the bladder and the ureters are, you know, within the box. You can fill it up with water and I mean, it's just like maybe a foot by 12 inches by 12 inches. And we've kind of changed the dimensions of different things in order to allow the sensation like the, I thought the, the heart kind of, there's a hard plastic piece that limited the mobility of the scope to go to the side more than you would be in a person. So we've changed things like that but I mean it's literally something that you could throw in a bag and bring from point A to point B so it should be really easy to tote around and if it improves the resident's understanding of the technique and their ability to safely participate in operation even a little bit for such kind of a fairly simple concept and model that can be toted around this easily I definitely think it's worth it for this oh wonderful so it's something available. That's wonderful. What are your thoughts and feelings on position warm-up? So warming up, thats a, it's actually a very common practice across sports and the performing arts. But when you think about it in medicine, maybe some people might not understand what that means. But when used before surgery, it can actually be just a mental warm-up where you go through the steps of the procedure as a group together or a physical warm-up, such as getting on the simulator that's attached to the robot and practicing for 15, 20 minutes before the actual surgery begins. A variety of studies have demonstrated that there are improvements in intraoperative performance, both in technical and cognitive performance when doing a warm-up. So I think it is an important part for trainees and even surgeons once they're out on the field. This could have really, really good utilization for techniques that we don't do every day. You know, there are certain procedures that are just really common, you know, maybe some open procedures that we just do all the time. And I don't think that there would be as much of a need for that. But I think especially for some of these procedures that, you know, people are trained to do, they're competent, they're proficient, they're, you know, practicing physicians, and they're really comfortable with these procedures. They just don't do them that frequently. Doing something where you're warming up could be hugely beneficial. And again, even if it's just for cognitive purposes to, to make the surgeon kind of feel comfortable going back into that procedure that you just maybe don't do, but every few months or something like that, or even more rarely than that, it could be hugely beneficial. And especially for something where it's just the technique is really important, something like deflux injection or again, robotics. If somebody's doing robotic cases and they just don't do that many, sitting down at the robot for a few minutes before starting to do a procedure and just warming up for a few minutes, that could really certainly be beneficial. But a lot of other fields outside of medicine use a lot of these techniques that I think we're just kind of slow to adopt. And perhaps we should look to what they're doing a little bit more and make it our own. You know, another idea is surgical coaching. You know, athletes, just because they're pros doesn't mean that they don't have coach anymore. But somehow, you know, we graduate residents and trainees and they're kind of out there without further support. So that's another thing that I I think is a really interesting concept. So again, just kind of utilizing these techniques that other fields are already already doing, already using, and bringing them into medicine could be really beneficial. Dr. Stansel, what are some of the things you've learned in helping to bring the deflux simulator along? 
One thing that I learned is how actually limited deflux education is for trainees. It can be very center dependent. You know, pediatric urology is a small field. The training centers, the the large training centers for fellowship have maybe five to 10 attendings. 10 would be really on the on the bigger side. We have six in our program and I consider ours to be a fairly sizable program. So that just means that the fellows in their one year of clinical training just may only actually participate in a handful of these cases. There are, you know, a lot of things going on, a lot of different procedures in different rooms, and they just may not do a lot of these. And I think some centers do a lot more deflux than other centers. So, but it is a technique that is really important. It's a technique that families may come and ask for it. And that's something that we should be counseling patients for kind of regardless of how much a urologist may be sort of leaning towards this as the their technique of choice for a particular greater reflux or whatever. It is a technique that we need to be talking about and we need to be able to do and our trainees need to be able to graduate knowing how to do. We owe that to them and we owe it to the patient. So improving education in this particular procedure is really important so that the option for the trainee when they graduate to use this technique is there and they're not scared of it or uncomfortable because they had a limited experience. That That's not good for them and it's not good for the patients. The, if this is a viable option for the patient, the patients should have an opportunity to participate in the discussion. This is a shared decision-making world and we owe it to the patients to be able to offer this procedure and to have our trainees offer this procedure and to do it well when they're doing it. So if the deflux model is able to improve that education and training so that we can have more physicians be able to comfortably offer this procedure when it should be offered and when it should be an option for the patient, that's a huge win. Dr. Candelicchio, with your experience and going back to your article and, and training and introduction, I know you've seen the training simulator, um, but do you think this is something that pediatric urologists, fellows coming out who may not have had a lot of experience with deflux, why there are fellows, do you think this is something that they would benefit from using? I do. I do. Having just finished my fellowship this past summer, I can really reflect on that from that standpoint. Well, Dr. Stanislaw said, you know, not every center performs deflux at the same rate as other centers. And I would have benefited from having this available to me just to help augment those numbers that we spoke of. Then, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about volume, being comfortable with the equipment, being comfortable with the fine motor skills necessary to hold the equipment and the deflux needle at the same time. If you get all that out of the way, once you get in the operating room, you can really focus on what you need to do there, which is be able to have that tactile feedback for the actual injection of the mound, which is critical to the success of the procedure. This episode concludes season three of the Pete Space. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for season four. At Palette Life Sciences, we recognize the importance of training and are committed to developing useful tools for physicians to ensure they are comfortable and confident with our products. 
We are working through final details of our newest Deflux simulator model and would be happy to meet with you when it is available. Please request a visit through your local area manager. And please remember to share this episode with your colleagues while we deliver more pediatric urology focused content in the coming weeks. For more educational content and upcoming webinars, please visit the Deflux Learning Center on deflux.com and follow our social media accounts. Additionally, you can learn more about our company and our products at palletlifesciences.com. Thank you.